Welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Thanks for joining us each week as we hear from God's Word and seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all. Psalm chapter 2, um, we're starting at verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Welcome to the Bible Talks. It's nice to see you. Uh, Let's pray for God to help us understand this part of his word. Father God, thanks so much for the opportunity we have to come and listen to what you've got to say to us in the Bible. Thanks for this brilliant psalm, really confronting psalm, that's going to help us understand life in your world. Please teach us now, we pray. Help us by your spirit to understand this psalm and understand how it applies to our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is your attitude towards God? How would you describe how you feel towards God? You might be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and perhaps you might be very positive in your attitude towards God. But maybe, maybe you aren't a Christian. We love hosting people at the Bible Talks who aren't followers of Jesus. We love that you're here listening to what God's got to say. Perhaps you're still checking out Jesus, trying to work out what is the truth about Jesus. It's great that you're here. Maybe you might describe yourself in more neutral terms in your attitude towards God. But there is a possibility that you're listening along and you're not a Christian and perhaps you would say that your attitude towards God is much more negative. Maybe you might describe that attitude in words that really are negative. And again, it's great that you're here. I'm really glad that you're giving God a hearing. Around the world, people are not shy of uh, airing negative attitudes towards God. For example, American cosmologist and prominent atheist Lawrence Krauss said this, I can't prove that God doesn't exist, but I would much rather live in a universe without one. It doesn't sound that negative until you think about it. What's he saying? He's basically saying, God, I don't know much about you, but I really don't want you around. Wish you weren't here. Woody Allen gets a little bit more in God's face with this next quote. If God exists, I hope he has a good excuse. See, God, according to Woody, has a bit of explaining to do. He's not living up to our expectations, so he needs to explain himself. And of course, if you want real attitude towards God, then Richard Dawkins is always going to bring it. 
The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Do you feel what he's uh, saying? We humans can be pretty good at railing against God, can't we? Are you good at it? This railing against God, that's the context that we find ourselves in as we open Psalm 2. So what do you think God will have to say about our railing against him? Let's have a look at this psalm together. We're at point one, humanity versus God. And grab your Bibles. I want to read you the first three verses. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. These verses are full of unrest. <coughs> Excuse me. There is turmoil among the nations. The rulers of the nations are uniting and conspiring and plotting about how to throw off God. This is humanity railing against God. This is humanity versus God. And look at the way that humanity is speaking about God in verse 3. They are accusing God of enslaving them in bonds and cords. They are painting God to be a, a cruel slave master who has held humanity down for too long. And humanity wants out. It's a caricature, of course, isn't it? God doesn't literally hold humans in ropes and chains. But the caricature speaks of that human desire to throw God off, to be free of God. In our most natural state, we humans don't want God to be God over us. We want to be masters of our own destiny. We want autonomy to live however we want to live. We don't want to answer to any God. If you've ever wondered what the Bible really means by the word sin, these verses are a very good picture of it. When we humans think of sin, we, we often think of small disobedient acts, things like stealing or, or breaking God's laws, things like perhaps sexual expression outside of marriage or, or even maybe naughty thoughts, things that we consider small and, and, and trivial. Now, it's true that those things are part of what the Bible calls sin, but if you really want to understand human sin at its most basic level, these three verses are a great picture. Our human sin at the most fundamental level is this kind of rebellion against God. Our sin is all about not wanting God to be God over us. Human sin is all about railing against God and seeking to throw him off. These verses paint a fairly chaotic picture of human rebellion against God. The picture looks pretty crazy and out of control. But look at how God responds. Is God panicked by this human uprising? Is God concerned about this rebellion? Well, have a look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God is not threatened by this attempted coup. God laughs. It shows just how foolish it is for humans to think that we can throw God off. God is not threatened by human rebellion. God is not troubled by this human bid for freedom. God laughs. What does the laughter communicate? 
God is not threatened by even the rulers of the world uniting against him. God's laughter reinforces just how pathetic it is for humans to think that we can take on God and throw him off. But don't let that laughter lull you into a false sense of security. God has every right to be angry when humans that he has created rebel against him, rise up and seek to throw him off. This uprising is not a threat to God, but you can understand why God would be angry. How do you think God feels about your attitude towards him? How do you think God feels about the attitudes of Lawrence Krauss, Woody Allen, Richard Dawkins? Can you see God has a right to be angry at this kind of rebellions from the rebellion from the humans that he has made? Well, it's only fair that God should have a voice in this conflict. It's only fair to let God speak for himself about this rebellion. Will you let God speak about his anger? Let's have a look at verse five. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, press pause there for a moment. God, who has every right to be angry at human rebellion, is about to speak in his wrath. What would you expect him to say? Have you got in your head what you would expect God to say in his anger at human rebellion? Now let's read what God does actually say. And let me see well, whether you think it's anything like what you expected. Verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Is that what you expected God to say? We're at point two, God and God's king. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Of all the things I might have expected God to say in his anger, that is not high on the list. In fact, when that statement is introduced by the line, he will terrify them in his fury and say, you don't expect the terrifying statement of God's anger to be, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That statement doesn't sound very terrifying. Why would that statement be terrifying? Here's a chance for you to have a think for yourself or perhaps with the group of people you might be with. Uh, I'll put the statement up on the screen. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. How could that statement possibly be terrifying? Enjoy having a chat about that for a few minutes. The terrifyingness of that statement obviously has something to do with the king. It's saying something about that king, isn't it? So what is it about this king that could be terrifying? Well, we need to keep reading. Let's read verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The first thing we learn about this king is that God has made a decree about him. The decree begins with what looks like adoption. This king is declared by God to be God's son. And that declaration was probably made on the day the king took the throne in Israel. This psalm is sometimes called a coronation psalm because it is believed to have been read, to, be, to have been proclaimed significantly on the day that Israel's king first took his throne. So on that day that the king was crowned and declared to be the ruler in Israel, he was also declared to have this very special relationship with God. 
From that moment onwards, all of the kings in Israel had that very important title, Son of God. Now, we're not talking about deification. They remained human, these kings. The kings of Israel didn't become gods or even try to pretend that they were gods. That's what the kings of Egypt did, the pharaohs. You see, they took on a similar name, sons of God. But they believed the pharaohs from that point onwards that they actually became gods, real gods, actual gods. No king in Israel ever thought that this title conferred on him actual godlike status. No king of Israel ever thought that. The kings in Israel remained humans, but they were declared to have this very special relationship with God. It all went back to a promise that God made to the second king of Israel, King David. And have a look at it on the screen, 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 14. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, this is God talking to King David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. There's the promise, isn't it? God promised great King David that he would have an eternal dynasty and God promised that God would be a father to every Davidic king in that dynasty. And that is why this psalm could proclaim the king's divine sonship at every coronation in Israel as descendant of David after descendant of David took that throne among God's people. But this impressive title surely doesn't make the king terrifying. Why would a son of God king be God's terrifying answer? To human rebellion. It's all about, <coughs> excuse me, it's all about the authority God gives to his chosen king. Have a look at verses 8 and 9. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Wow, these verses are big. They are saying that God will give the earth to his people, to his chosen king. God is going to give everything, the earth and all its people, to the king that he chooses. He's going to give it to that king as a heritage, he says. Now, I don't know whether you realize it, but the word heritage literally means something you inherit. This is inheritance language. The son of God king is being promised the world as his inheritance from the God who made it all. And verse eight makes it pretty clear that the son of God king can do with his inheritance as he sees fit. If his inheritance is rebellious and out of line, the son of God king can exact his judgment. He can break his inheritance with a rod of iron. He can dash his inheritance to pieces like shattering a clay pot. This language paints the king as something like God's instrument of judgment against human rebellion. The rebels have been given to the king and the king can exact God's judgment. And thus, the son of God king is God's answer to human rebellion. He has been given authority and power by God to bring human rebels to judgment. 
Are you starting to see why it might be actually terrifying that God has set his king on Zion, his holy hill? So how would a smart rebel respond? We're at point three, be wise, O kings. And let's have a look at the last three verses in the psalm. (coughs) Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, monarchy today may not give you a super accurate representation of the power of kings and queens throughout history. She doesn't look that terrifying, does she? It's Queen Elizabeth, and at 94 years of age, I don't imagine she instills fear into that many of her enemies. But you have to realise that we live in very abnormal times in the history of the world. Throughout most of the history of the world, there were very powerful kings, just a few of them in each era. And in the countries that surrounded these very powerful kings, there were less powerful kings and rulers who had to make a decision. That decision is helpfully summarized by Jesus in a parable he told. So I'll let Jesus explain it to you from here. Luke 14, 31 to 32, Jesus says, Or what king... Going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. If you were a king throughout most of world history and you were confronted with a more powerful king, you had the choice to either fight or submit and ask for peace. You could try to fight and try to overpower the other king and become the new superpower in the region. However, that was a high risk, high reward situation. You had to risk potentially losing the fight and then being absolutely smashed and then having your country and your people probably ransacked for your rebellion against the greater king. Your other choice was to submit to the more powerful king. You could have peace with the more powerful king if you let him be in charge and submitted yourself and your kingdom to the greater king. So what would a smart king do? Like Jesus said, you need to weigh up your opponent and weigh up your chances. So what should a wise king of the earth do when confronted with God's appointed king? If God has given this king power and authority over all the earth, then a wise human king would probably put down their guns and surrender quickly to the Lord of all the earth. Verses 11 and 12 put that surrender in beautiful poetic language. Serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish. This imagery (coughs) of kissing the son is all about submitting. In the ancient world, it was often the great king's feet that were kissed by the submitting king. It's a sign of submission. It's a sign of service and gratitude. And if you submitted to the great king, then he became your protector, your big brother, your refuge against other kings in the area who might come against you. This psalm is holding out peace and refuge to human rebels, whether they be kings or commoners. 
God's king is pictured as having all of God's power and authority for judging human rebels. Yet the the hope of refuge is promised to anyone who submits to God's king. But here is the question that we need to think about. This psalm is addressed to the kings of the earth who have taken their stand against God and his Israelite king. But these psalms are Israel's psalms. This is Israel's songbook, isn't it? Those kings of the earth to whom the psalm is addressed, they are never going to read this psalm. So why address this psalm to kings who are never going to read it? Here's another opportunity for you to have a chat with someone nearby. Why address this psalm to kings who are never going to read it? Enjoy. This psalm is for the people of Israel, isn't it? Little tiny Israel, surrounded by powerful enemy nations and often under the rule of powerful enemy kings. But Psalm 2 was written to encourage the embattled people of Israel with the good news that God and his king would one day bring worldwide victory. So it's time to think about how this psalm applies to our lives in 2020. We're at point four, this psalm and me. Now we've worked hard to understand this psalm in its original context. This psalm applied first and foremost to the kings of Israel who were descended from David. Now incredibly, for a small amount of history, Israel was the world's superpower. Little tiny Israel was the mighty nation in the area. It was the back end of David's reign and then continued into his son Solomon's reign. But after Solomon, it was pretty much all downhill for Israel and her kings. The worldwide victory never really materialized under the reign of any king in Israel for the next 400 years. And then in about 600 BC, the new world superpower, Babylon, actually conquered the last of God's people and pretty much ended that Davidic dynasty. Babylon took everything and hauled the people off into exile. And you can imagine how much the people of Israel longed for the peace and victory that this psalm spoke about. And they began to understand this psalm as a future promise. Can you imagine how much they longed for this son of God king to come and defeat their enemies and give them this worldwide peace that was promised in Psalm 2. And then hundreds of years later, (coughs) when Rome is the great superpower of the world, a baby comes onto the scene. And even when he's a baby, even before he's born, he is spoken about in this kind of kingly son of God language. First, it's the angel who appeared to to Mary's betrothed husband, Joseph, and told him it's okay to take her home and the baby home because the baby is conceived by God through the Holy Spirit. Then it's the wise men who come from faraway lands to worship, not a baby, but the king of the Jews. This baby, from the moment, even before he's born, is loaded with Psalm 2 kinds of expectation. And then after the baby had grown into a man, 
At his baptism, that voice from heaven confirmed that most precious title of Psalm 2. The voice from heaven at his baptism said, This is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. And then as we keep reading through the gospel, we see Jesus doing the kinds of things you might expect God's king to do and having the kind of power and authority that you might expect God's king to have. But interestingly, Jesus didn't proclaim himself as the great son of God, Messiah King. He didn't shout it from the rooftops. And it was only some, a very small number of people who were able to see this truth before his death and resurrection. One example of this is the Apostle Peter. And I want to alert you to two things before we read about Peter. First, you probably know that another way of referring to this Son of God King in Hebrew is Messiah. And as that word Messiah gets transferred into the New Testament language of Greek, it's the word Christ. It means the same thing. Messiah, Christ, Son of God, King. They're all meaning the same thing. And second thing I want you to notice is how Peter comes to the right conclusion about this Son of God King. Let's put it up on the screen. Matthew 16, verses 15 to 17. Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The great Psalm 2 king was meant to smash things, was meant to come with that rod of iron. Jesus is clearly the Psalm 2 Messiah Christ king. And yet it takes divine intervention for even the apostle next to Jesus to see that truth. And as the disciples sort of come to understand that this, this guy with them is this great Son of God, Messiah, Christ, King. Well, you can see why they'd be very surprised when just a few verses later, he says this. Matthew 16, verses 21 to 22. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. This great Psalm 2 king, Peter says, No, 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 you don't come and, and, and die on a cross. You come and smash things with that rod of iron. You come with the iron scepter and win world victory for God and the good guys. He was not meant to get killed by the enemies of God's people. You can understand God's reaction. You can understand Peter's reaction, sorry. And yet in God's amazing wisdom, the way this king would win the worldwide victory and bring peace was through death on a cross and then through resurrection from the dead and then exaltation to the worldwide throne in heaven. How amazing that the great king would not just come with a rod of iron, but would come first to give his very life as a sacrifice for humans who have rebelled against their God. Jesus gave his life at the cross so that rebels like you and like me could lay down our guns and flee to him for refuge. 
Jesus is the great son of God, king. He does hold the iron rod of God's power and God's judgment, and he will bring every rebel to judgment. But by dying in our place, he has taken upon himself the judgment of God that rebels deserved so that rebels can be forgiven and have peace with God and his king. If you want that peace and refuge with God and his king, instead of having to face the rod of iron of his judgment, then make peace with the king now. Submit to him as your king and trust in his death on the cross for your salvation. As you look around the world today and see the various world powers, what do you see? America fading? China rising, India wishing, Russia plotting, Australia trying? Would you prefer to trust in any of those world rulers? Don't forget who is really in charge. If you're a Christian in America right now, probably struggling to cope with the political and the health and the economic challenges that are going on, remember who is in charge and submit to the true king. Listen to Jesus about how to respond wisely and Christianly to the messy times that you find yourself in at the moment. If you are a Christian in Hong Kong at the moment, probably struggling to cope with the challenges of government and health and protests, remember who is really in charge and submit to the true king. Listen to Jesus about how to respond wisely and Christianly to the messy situation that you find yourself in at the moment. And if you are a Christian anywhere else in the world, you too need to remember who is really in charge so that you will submit to him and respond wisely and Christianly to the challenges in your particular part of the world. But make no mistake, about who is in charge. Jesus is the great Psalm 2, Son of God, King. He has been given all authority of God to bring the whole world under judgment. If you don't want the beautiful forgiveness that he died to provide, then you will meet him face to face as your judge. Rebellion, it's a waste of time. Because the great Son of God, King, has already won. He has already taken the throne and he will soon return in judgment. You need to work out how you want to meet the great King. As friend or foe? As Lord or enemy? As subject or subversive? I really want to encourage you to seek peace with the great King and to find refuge in his power and mercy. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this great psalm that understands our world so well and reminds us of Jesus' place in our world. We thank you that you've sent the great Son of God, King, not only with the rod of iron, but also sacrificially giving up his life to save those who turn back to him. Please help us to respond to Jesus rightly and flee to him for refuge. We thank you so much that we can be forgiven for our rebellion and have peace with you 
because of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out at Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org. Thank you.